Uh, Please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 23. We are nearing the end of our study in the book of Joshua. Hopefully you've enjoyed it as much as I have over the course of this fall into the Christmas season. We'll wrap up Joshua on Christmas Eve, actually, which you may find surprising, but I think will be an incredibly timely message in light of celebrating Christmas and Christmas Eve. In my household, there's a phrase that frequently comes up, both when we're getting ready for school in the morning and also when we're getting ready for bed at night. The phrase goes something like this, I got distracted. Parents out in the audience know exactly what I'm talking about. As you're getting ready, as you're trying to get changed and either get jammies on for bed or get clothes on for school, and you find that one of your children hasn't done so quite as quickly as you had hoped, I'll look down at one of my children, who will remain nameless for the sake of their identity, and say something to the effect of, didn't I tell you to go downstairs and get changed? To which my lovely children will turn and say in the most disarming tone that they can conjure, I got distracted. (laughs) Their way of telling me that they didn't do what I asked them to do. And though in that moment a number of pithy comments run through my mind, some more edifying than others, I usually settle for reminding them that getting distracted is the same as disobeying. And from there, I have two basic course of actions. I can either remind them of my past command, this is what I told you to do, I need you to do it, or I can remind them of the future realities of the choice they make, either positive or negative. And that reminder of past and promise of the future, then serve as a motivation for them to be obedient in the present, right? And though as adults we may feel our disobedience to God is more understandable, more subtle, more hidden, more excusable, the same is true of us, is it not? Our disobedience usually comes from a failure to remember what God has done in the past or to appropriately consider what he has promised to do in the future, Instead, we get distracted by our present concerns and the circumstances of our lives, do we not? So this morning, as we walk through this text in Joshua chapter 23, I believe Joshua reminds us that obedience today is motivated by the past and future realities of God's faithfulness. Let me say that again. Obedience today is motivated by the past and future realities of God's faithfulness. Now, I want to note here real briefly, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach because we're going to jump around a bit in Joshua 23 as we're walking through it. Also, Joshua 23 is a bit of a different style of literature than the rest of Joshua. I've read the text as we've walked through the passages, most of Joshua, because it's a story. Here in Joshua 23, this is actually a speech that Joshua delivers. And so I want to read the entire speech that Joshua gives here in Joshua 23, and then we'll pray and move into our message this morning. Joshua 23, verse 1. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all of Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off, from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. 
and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong and keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. Be careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you trespass the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. Let's pray. Father, what a season it is. As we pause to slow down and remember Christ coming to earth for us. Lord, we're humbled by that reality. We are overwhelmed by the fact that the word was made flesh and tabernacled among men. Thank you for that. Thank you for Christ going to the cross to save us and to redeem a people so that we can gather this morning to worship and sing your praises. Lord, we pray that as we study your word together, it would continue to be an act of worship. But as I preach your word and as we listen to your word being taught, that we would worship you and praise you for who you are, and that through that act, you would change our hearts and our minds, conform us to the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we have now reached the conclusion of the book of Joshua, if you haven't noticed. Having crossed into the land, chapters 1 through 5, having conquered the land, chapters 6 through 12, and then having distributed and allotted the land, chapters 13 through 21, these final three chapters focus on what Israel is to do to serve and worship God in the land. Last week we saw that serving God requires unity among God's people, supported by the twin pillars of a zeal for God's holiness and a love for one another. Today we transition into the first of these two final speeches, these closing words that Joshua gives to the people before he dies. And you'll recall that Joshua set the stage a bit in verses 1 and 2. Remember, he said, A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all of Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officials, and said, I am now old and well advanced in years. I won't make another comment since I did that the last time we were there. Likely what's taking place here is 20 or 30 years after the last few chapters and what's been going on with the allotment of the land, Joshua calls Israel together and he addresses primarily their leaders, their elders, their, their judges, their officials, and he says, there are some things that you need to know as we go through a second leadership transition. As I die and you begin to take over, here are the things you need to know. And the first speech he gives is in chapter 23, the second speech will be next week in chapter 24. 
But I believe that the point of Joshua's speech here in chapter 23 is exactly the point of what we need to hear this morning. Obedience today is motivated by the past and future realities of God's faithfulness. He's going to look to the past and remember what God has done, and then he's going to look to the future and say what God has promised to do, and then he will call Israel to obedience in the present. So I think we see at least two motivations for our obedience today as well. Our first motivation for obedience is what I've called past truth. Past truth. He begins with a bit of a history lesson for those that have forgotten. He tells them how God had promised Israel victory before. Victory in the land. This is part of what we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Here I want to read Deuteronomy 11 verse 23 just to remind us what God had promised. Then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you and will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. God had promised this to Moses before Joshua ever took over. Then Joshua echoes that same promise at the beginning of the book of Joshua. Joshua 1 verse 5. God says to Joshua, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. That was part of the preparation of Joshua as he prepared to go into the promised land with the people of Israel. And now here... In our text, at the end of the book, Joshua says, that promise has been fulfilled. God was exactly faithful to what he said he was going to do. Look at verse 3. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. He says, you have seen how God has done precisely what he said he was going to do. And he escalates this language in verses 9 and 10. Look at verse 9. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand. Since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. You pick up on what he's saying. He's saying the promise that God made to Moses in Deuteronomy, the promise that he made to me before we entered the land is the promise that he has fulfilled. Each and every one of you as elders, as leaders, has seen this personally. You have witnessed God's fulfillment of his promises. God has given them victory just as he promised to do. But God promised more than just victory to the people of Israel, and we recall this as well. God had promised them the land. Look at verse 4. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea to the west. This too was a promise that God had made to Moses and then is repeated at the beginning of the book of Joshua. In Deuteronomy 11, verse 24, we read, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. The same promise is echoed, like I said, in Joshua 1, 3, and 4. Let me read that. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. God had promised this in the past, years earlier, and then here in verse 4, he says, that's exactly what you've just been given. This land that God promised to give you, everywhere that your feet went, God has done. They had personally received this allotment. That's what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks as God distributes the land he's promised to give them. Now, it's worth noting there's a bit of a caveat here in this verse, as you'll note, 
that there are, along with some nations that still remain, there are still some nations, some peoples that are in the land that have not yet been fully driven out by the Israelites. We talked about that a few weeks ago, how there was a charge given to the Israelites to finish the job. They still haven't finished the job. It's going to come back to bite them, and we're going to see that here in just a little bit. But the point is that God gave them the land as he had promised. God promised them victory in the land, and he gave that to them. God had promised them the land, and he gave that to them. Later in the speech, Joshua summarizes this point well in verse 14. Look at 23, verse 14. And now, I am about to go the way of all the earth. That means he's going to die, just in case you haven't picked up on that. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. What an incredible reality that Joshua has lived and seen in his lifetime. This is the point. Past experiences of God's faithfulness should motivate obedience today. Joshua looks back and he says, you have experienced God doing exactly what he promised to do over the last 40, 50, 60 years. That should, that should motivate you to obey what he's calling you to do today. And that would have been so true for Joshua, would it not? Think about Joshua, thinking back over the course of his life. Joshua had been born a slave in Egypt. I don't know if you've considered that in your head, but he was born in Egypt as a slave. He had personally witnessed Moses coming and the ten plagues of Egypt decimate the most powerful nation in the world of the day. He had witnessed the Red Sea being parted. He had walked to Mount Sinai and watched God's Shekinah glory descend on that mountain and God deliver the Ten Commandments. He had watched the people rebel at the bottom of the mountain with the golden calf incident and be judged. Then he had gone to the promised land and gone in as a spy, returned back just to have the people reject his wisdom and wander around in the desert for another 40 years. And then he had witnessed God fulfilling his promise to give them the land all in one lifetime. What an incredible testimony Joshua would have had. And he says to the leaders, you have seen the very same things. You have witnessed God's faithfulness. Why do you think Joshua was always building monuments? Recall through the book of Joshua, consistently they stop and they build monuments. Monuments to remind them of God's faithfulness. Monuments to remind them of God's justice and judgment. And that same reality that past experiences of God's faithfulness should motivate obedience today is just as true for us today as it was for them then. As I was trying to think through, like, what is the practical significance of this? What does this look like worked out in a life? I was reminded of what the last couple years have looked like for Jenna and myself. One of the things that as we were doing the interim preaching role and we were wrestling with the whole realities of that that came up again and again for us was the impending reality that probably a year or two from when we started that position, we were going to have to say goodbye to Faith Bible Church. And we'd spent the last decade plus, 12 years or so, getting to know all of you. Building a community of people and a support network that we loved and cared for. The thought of leaving that was something that was extremely hard for us to deal with over the course of that season. But the thing that we again and again had to remind ourselves of is if God did it once, he can do it again. If God had given us that sort of support network and community once, he could do it again. And some of us need to be reminded of that. 
As we go through our current circumstance in life, and as we look at the circumstances, we go, surely this time God isn't in control. And Joshua tells you, look back. Do you remember the last time he was faithful? The last time you had a moment of crisis? Did God not come through for you then? Will he not come through for you again today? As an individual believer, you probably have moments in your life where you look back, and though at the time it didn't seem clear and you didn't know what God was doing, you can see his hand on that circumstance now. When you're going through a difficult time, when you're trying to figure out what to do, we look back to those moments and say, I can be obedient today because I know God is faithful. As a church, we do the same thing. You may be new to Faith Bible Church. You may not know a lot of our history but the starting of Faith, of Faith Bible Church was a massive step of faith on the part of the elders and Pastor Tom. As they went to launch a new church and they weren't sure if anyone was going to show up and they weren't sure if anyone was going to support the ministry, and God provided 170 people in the first month's rent on that first Sunday. It's an incredible testimony to God's faithfulness. Or even if you consider the reality of church history, how over the last 2,000 years, the church has made all sorts of dumb mistakes gotten off on all sorts of bad trajectories, and yet God in his faithfulness has preserved both his word and his people. And when we're tempted to think that this is the moment the church is finally once and for all going to fail, we're reminded that God has preserved her for 2,000 years. God's faithfulness in the past should motivate us to be obedient to him in the present. And it also should remind us that we should share these sort of stories with each other. When someone you know is going through a difficult time, when they're questioning whether or not God has a plan, that's a great opportunity to share how God has been faithful to you. We encourage and we share these stories because God has never failed in his promises and he never will. But Joshua doesn't just linger in the glory days of the past. He's more concerned with Israel's future and where they're going. And so he looks forward and in this next section we see our second motivation for obedience, something I'm calling future trust. Again, this reality comes up in multiple places in Joshua's speech here in Joshua 23. But first, I want to focus on the positive blessings, and then we'll take a look at the negative curses. First, the positive blessings. Look at verse 5. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. He's talking about the nations that still exist. He's saying God's promised faithfulness to you, to preserve you and to give you victory over your enemies is an ongoing promise. He said, if you will continue to be faithful to me, then I will continue to fulfill my promises to you. I will continue to drive out your enemies from before you. I will continue to give you victory by my powerful right hand. However, he doesn't just look forward to the positives. God also speaks to the negatives here both the positive consequences and the guarantees for unfaithfulness for his people. And we see in these two sections, in verses 12 and 13, and then again in verses 15 and 16, what will be the negative consequences that God will bring on his own people if they reject him? It comes in a if-then format. You're going to see this in each section. Let me read verses 12 and 13. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will not or will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap to you, a whip on your side and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. 
Pick up on that. He says, I have made promises to you and I will be faithful to them. But if you rebel against me, I have also promised you to bring negative curses on you as well. Comes in an if-then format. He says, if you engage in the sort of adulterous mixing with other nations, if you intermarry with them, if you associate with them, if you fraternize with them and worship their gods, then the same things that I promised as far as victory in a land that I gave you, I can take away as well. I promised to give you victory, and I promised to give you the land, and if you rebel against me, I will remove that blessing of victory, and I will remove you from the land. Verses 15 and 16 echo the same thing. Let's read that. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. Same sort of format. He says, if, verse 16, you engage in rebellion and idolatry and rejecting the covenant of the Lord, then the result will be destruction. The result will be perishing. The same thing that caused me to jettison the Canaanites from the promised land, I will bring upon you. Because that's what I've promised. If you've read through the Pentateuch, you know that's precisely what God had promised to do. Excuse me, to do. So God has to be faithful both to his positive blessings and also to his warnings of curses. And if you know the rest of the Old Testament, a passage like this feels like ominous foreshadowing, does it not? That's precisely what happens. The next generation that follows after their parents here engages in that sort of rebellion. And the book of Judges is all about how the people rebel against God and how God brings in foreign nations to judge them and how they repent and how God restores them and they go through this cycle again and again and again. And the next hundred years will be an example after example of the people rebelling against God, breaking his covenant, and God patiently waiting until finally they're exiled from the land. And they're removed because they have so broken the covenant that they look just like the Canaanites that they ejected. And Joshua's point, I think, here is just as clear. God's promises for the future should motivate obedience today as well. Just like his faithfulness in the past is a motivation for obedience, his promises of what he's going to do in the future are also a motivation for obedience and this motivation comes from both the positive blessings and also the potential for discipline as well. Just like when I tell my children what's going to happen in the future if they obey or disobey. I tell them, if you obey, then this will happen. If you disobey, then this will happen. And though they think I'm just kidding with the negative, we have a consistent conversation that's like, do you want daddy to be a liar? No. Do I have to do what I've told you I'm going to do? Yes exactly the same thing as what God does here. He says, these are the blessings, these are the curses, what are you going to do? I will be faithful to my promise either way, because I'm God and I can't lie. For the believer, both God's goodness and God's discipline should motivate obedience. Have you thought about this in your own life? The blessings of being obedient to God and the discipline he promises when we rebel against him are both motivations to obey today. 
On the one hand, God promises sanctification in a verse like Philippians 1, verse 6, where he says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And when we're tempted to call it quits, when we're tempted to absolutely give up, God says, I have promised to sanctify you and to prepare you for glory. That promise I will bring to fruition. That's an incredible motivation for obedience as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the flip side of the equation is God has also promised discipline for rebellion. In a passage like Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6, the author of Hebrews says, God disciplines the son in whom he loves. Because God loves us, when we choose to rebel and to walk away from him, he will discipline us, and that discipline sometimes hurts. And so as the believer, we look at both the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience or the discipline of God, though the wrath of God doesn't fall on us, God does correct our behavior. And both of those things should motivate us to not turn from the word to the left or to the right, but to stay on the straight and narrow, to be obedient to God. But I think there's also an application here for the unbeliever. If you're here with us this morning and you don't yet know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I think there is both a warning and a blessing held out to you in this text as well. For you, both God's salvation, the promised hope of Christ, and also God's judgment should move you, should motivate you to repentance. God's promise of salvation, first and foremost, in 2 Peter verses three, or chapter 3, verse 9, God says, or Paul, or Peter, writing of God, says, God is not willing that any should perish, but desires for everyone to come to a saving knowledge of him. And so God is appealing to you, appealing to you to repent and to believe in Christ because Christ died for your sin. This is exactly what we celebrate at Christmas. In fact, that God walked this earth and he died the death on our behalf so that we can repent and have faith in him. But in a text like this, there's also the promise of judgment. There's the promise of judgment that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul writes these words, and I think they are incredibly important for us to remember. Paul writes, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's also an incredible warning in the book of Joshua as well. And for those that don't fall on God's grace, that don't rely on Christ for their salvation, there awaits a day when wrath will come. And that judgment will be swift and that judgment will be eternal. And that's a warning that a book like Joshua holds out. And that day of Christ's final wrath will make the wrath that God poured out on the Canaanites and Joshua look like nothing. So from a text like this, I think both sides of this equation appeal to us to repent and believe in Christ. Ask you now while you still have the opportunity to say, I need Christ. Both because I have the opportunities for salvation and a relationship with God and also because God's judgment is coming. Don't leave today without having wrestled with that in your heart, without having committed your life to Christ. If you want to know more about what that means, about what that looks like, I'd encourage you to go over here to the gospel room, to this office over here after the service. We'll have some elders and pastors that can answer any questions you might have. 
But God has promised these future realities. For the believer, both blessing and discipline, and for the unbeliever, both salvation and judgment for disobedience. Which leaves us and Joshua with one final dimension of time. We've talked about the past, we've talked about the future, that leaves us with the present. Both past and future realities are meant to motivate, point number three, present troth. Now, I realize that some of you here this morning think that I both misspoke just now and also managed to get it misspelled up on the slide. I actually didn't. The word is troth, which you're probably not aware of. I wasn't aware of it until I was studying this week. And I ran into this term while studying, and I couldn't help using it. Well, for two reasons. Number one, it alliterates, right? The unwritten rule of preaching. But more so because the term I thought was so helpful. Troth, the definition of this term, though it's an old term, speaks to fidelity, loyalty, pledged faithfulness, or taking a vow. You'll notice that that is the root word of the word betrothed. One who is betrothed is one who has made a vow, a commitment, a fidelity to another person. And so both the past and the future should motivate us to have our commitment and vow to God prove itself in the way we live. As a result, it seemed like the perfect word for what Joshua encouraged Israel to do here in this text. In verse 6, he makes a present application and begins it with the verse over the word therefore. Look at verse 6. Joshua writing and speaking here says, Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Pick up on what he said. That you should be motivated by your allegiance and affinity for God and what he's done for you, and that should, the, the method for encouraging that is faithfulness to his word. Right? To turn from God's word neither to the left nor to the right, to focus on the word of God and obeying what God has commanded. And this itself is the repetition of another initial command that he made in Joshua 1, verse 7. Joshua writing there, God speaking to him, says, Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. And how many of us, when we put be strong and courageous up on the wall of our kitchen, think that means obedience to God's word? But here he says, the way, the method for keeping our focus and our allegiance correctly to God, for obeying his commands, is to be in his word. And that means the opposite is also true. That means rejecting other paths. I love the imagery here. It's the same imagery that the writer of Proverbs puts in that book, to turn from it neither to the right hand or to the left hand. This idea that there is a path and our tendency is to step off the path to walk off the path in one way or the other, and we need the Word of God to align our vision to keep us focused on the straight and narrow. And this means evaluating human wisdom against God's Word, not editing God's Word to conform to human wisdom and ethics. How many times are we tempted in our modern era, rather than looking at what God's Word says and evaluating our culture around us, instead to say, this is what our culture deems to be right, and we'll just edit out the parts of the Word of God we don't like. There are whole denominations that are doing that now, who are seeking to say, yeah, God's Word is really secondary. 
And you hear these phrases all the time. Well, my God wouldn't. X. I don't think God would. X. Well, God is not like X. It's all well and good if it's coming from the Word of God, but more often than not, it comes from our own personal ethics and desires for what's right and what's wrong. We must reject these other paths and focus instead on what God's Word teaches. Because faithfulness today requires actively seeking God's will in God's Word. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness here. Will we listen to it? And I think he argues that that commitment will manifest itself in a couple of ways practically in our lives. In verses 7, 8, and then in 11, he explains both the negative and positive manifestations of this sort of allegiance, this sort of affinity for God. First, the negative. Look at verse 7. Joshua 23, verse 7. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of their names or the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. He mentions four specific actions, four forbidden actions, if you will, that manifest where our affections and our heart is actually at. This first, don't mix with the peoples around you, with the culture around you. That was the idea of marrying or intermingling and engaging in worship with these people, similar to like 1 Corinthians when we were talking about idols there. He says, don't mix, don't just kind of flirt around the edges with these other cultures, with these peoples and they are idolatry in your land. But going a step beyond that, he says also don't mention their gods. Now this seems a little strange because he's not saying you can't say the word Baal or Asherah or things like that. What he's saying is don't ascribe to those gods credit for the things you see in your life. What would have been a common practice of the day is if the rain came or his good fortune came or his fertility was prayed for, his people would look to him and say that is the result of this god. That is because of this pagan deity. And he's saying don't even mention them. Don't give them that credit. So he says don't mix don't mention, don't swear by, don't seek accountability from those gods. Don't say, I will do this according to this God. Let this God smite me if I don't do it. Then it gets really down to the heart of the matter. He says, don't serve. Serve, that is the term that's the theme of chapters 20, 23, or 22, 23, and 24. This idea of focusing our life around the goals of this thing or this object or this idol. He says, what will happen is if you begin to mix, and then you begin to mention, and then you begin to swear by, all of a sudden you'll find yourself serving that God with your life. And he punctuates the whole thing by saying, and ultimately you'll end up bowing down to that God. He says, don't worship that God. Your heart will be drawn away. And this is a picture of what happens to King Solomon hundreds of years later. As he begins to marry wives from all the foreign lands, and then begins to kind of associate with them and engage in their worship, and all of a sudden, before you know it, Solomon has walked away from God despite being the wisest man that ever lived. If as the wisest man that ever lived, he didn't manage flirting with sin, I don't think we will either. He says, don't go down this downward progression. Don't tip your toe in the water. Instead, he talks about two positive attitudes, two positive attributes that we should do. Verse 8 first. But you shall cling... To the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. I mentioned last week that I love this imagery. The idea of clinging, holding on to God for all your worth, for his sustaining power and presence in your life. The idea that John 15 expresses of abiding in Christ, holding fast to him, keeping a hold of him, not letting him go no matter what happens in life. He punctuates that with verse 11. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. 
two attitudes he encourages as the counter, the antidote, if you will, to the negative is clinging to the Lord and loving the Lord. See why troth was such an effective word? It is to be betrothed to God. And that's why consistently through both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God uses the imagery of a marriage for God and his people, for Christ and the church. You need a negative example of that. Just read Hosea this afternoon. God makes that point very clear in the prophet of Hosea. He says, you are betrothed to God. What you love, what you have an affection for will manifest what your heart is actually wanting. Faithfulness today manifests itself in the love and affection we show for God. And that rewrites the whole way we look at our engagement with the Word of God, does it not? If you're one of those people that struggle to engage with the Word of God because you're like, this is really boring and I don't really know what the point is, I would submit to you that it's because your paradigm is wrong. If you believe that God authored this book and He is disclosing Himself to you, that this is God's love letter to you in written form, it changes the whole way we think about reading our Bibles. We'll long to hear from Him. We'll long to know Him better and to seek Him. And that means that our present loyalty, our present affections for God stimulate our obedience to what he's commanded us to do. And yet I find it fascinating that when we aren't clinging to God through a daily time in his word and spending time in prayer with him, we are shocked by our ongoing struggles to find victory over sin. I am shocked as I wrestle with a sin in my life and I find, well, when have I spent time in God's word in prayer today? And as I counsel people in the church and they're wrestling with some sin issue and how often the question is, what was your time in the Word like this morning? What was your time in prayer with God like today? These realities manifest, they show where our affections are really at. And that's precisely why, contrary to the idols that we embrace in our life, contrary to the idols that the people of Israel would have embraced in Joshua's day, Christ saves us before calling us to obedience. We are saved by grace and then motivated to obedience. If we didn't highlight that reality here in the book of Joshua, we would be entirely missing the point. What God is not calling the Israelites to do is to save themselves through their works and then God will love them. Saying, I already saved you. I already brought you out of Egypt. I already set you in the land and now I'm asking you to live in obedience to me now that you're here. And we are saved by grace and then motivated to obedience as well. We are restored in our relationship with God and then given the motivation to pursue Him with all we have and to combat sin in our lives. But if that's true, then we also need to take a moment and we need to consider the sort of idols that we have a tendency to fall for. Because we'll read through a book like Joshua and we'll get to chapter 23 and we'll go, well, that's ridiculous. Whoever falls for idols... Why would people ever go after idols in their life? That doesn't even make sense. In our modern scientific era, the idea of bowing down to a little wooden statue seems ridiculous. Let me attempt to put you, or put some of the idols of our modern culture before you. And I would encourage you to assess your own heart if you haven't fallen possibly for the God of success. 
A God that demands your obedience and your hard work. And if you do well enough in life, it promises happiness if you'll just work hard enough. If you just put in enough hours at work, if you just sacrifice enough time with your family, here is the opportunity for success and validation. How about the God of social justice? The promise is we will be justified if we just engage in enough activism. If we just post enough things on our social media feed or walk in enough marches, then somehow we will find justification and validation for being. How about the God of popularity? Those of you that are students, high school or middle school. The God that promises you will belong and you will have a sense of validation if you just change who you are to look like the people around you, to act like the people around you. If you would just quit talking about God so much, then the rest of the people would like you. And you would feel like you belong. More recently, how about the God of nature that promises redemption only through conservation? There's a whole societal movement in our culture today that says you will have redemption if you just take care of Mother Earth. I'm not talking about stewardship of God's creation, that's fine. I'm talking about making nature your God. How about the God of ecstasy? That promises fulfillment and happiness and pleasure through various experiences through sexual fulfillment or through substances or through any number of things that says, if you want to feel fulfilled, this is the pathway to it. The God of money is the low-hanging fruit for us, is it not, in our materialistic culture? It says if you just have enough, it promises you security. You won't have to worry about what tomorrow holds if you can just accumulate enough money to insulate you from the realities of life. Do you struggle with any of these idols? Do you struggle with any of these temptations, these promises for fulfillment in something other than the person and work of Jesus Christ? All of these gods promise the world if you would just give them your devotion, if you would just give them your affection, your time, your energy, your thoughts, your the list could go on and on. And God, on the other hand, saves his people freely and then tends, tells them to obey out of a sense of gratitude for what he's done. Because you have already been saved. You don't have to validate yourself. I have already saved you, and now you can obey out of gratitude and affection for me. I would argue that we should seek to constantly foster that sort of loyalty, that sort of affection, that sort of troth for God, chiefly through engaging with his word. Which I think is precisely the point that Joshua is trying to get Israel to understand here. He's saying, I am about to go away. You will no longer have me to help guide you and steer you on the right paths. And in order to be faithful, ongoing, in order to not rebel against God, you need to remember the past, you need to remember the future, and you need to be obedient today. And today is the same thing for us. Our obedience should be motivated by past truth as we remember what God has done for us in the past and say, he can do it again today. It should be motivated by future trust as we look forward to the promises that God has given us to one day redeem us and to sanctify us and to purify us and to give us new bodies and to take us to heaven to be with him. And it chiefly should manifest in present troth and being betrothed 
to Christ as we remember what we not have to do in obedience, but what we get to do as we've been freed from our sin. Say it one more time. Obedience today is motivated by the past and future realities of God's faithfulness. If you're struggling to obey what God has commanded in his word today, I would encourage you to consider that reminder. Let's pray. Father, we need you now just as much as we have ever needed you. We needed you to save us, to open our eyes to the truth of the gospel. We needed Christ to come into the world to die the death we couldn't die, to pay the penalty for our sins, to redeem a people for himself. And we need you today to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of Christ, to help us to work out our salvation, knowing that it is you that works in us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you this morning, that the realities of both the positive relationship that you hold out with you and also the realities of the judgment that's coming if they rebel and reject you, that you would make that clear in their minds and that you would soften their hearts and open their eyes to that truth. And Lord, as those that have placed our faith in Jesus, we struggle just as much with the idols of this world with seeking to find our fulfillment, our satisfaction, our happiness in anything other than Christ. So Lord, I do pray that whether it be through the positive blessings or whether it be through your discipline, that you would break us of our independence, that you would break us of our seeking our validation in idols and things other than Christ. Lord, help us to find our fulfillment in you and encourage us to obedience today by reminding us of your faithfulness in the past, by helping us to trust in your promises for the future. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.